Hello, you are listening to Knight's History Cast, where we have conversations about history. This podcast is brought to you by the University of Central Florida's History Department. I am Holly Baker, and I will be your host for this week's episode of Knight's History Cast. I recently talked with Dorothy Davis about her presentation at the James Weldon Johnson Lecture Series titled, Lift Every Voice and Sing, an African Diasporan Interpretation. In her presentation, Dorothy Davis discussed the life of her father, Griff Davis, a pioneering African-American photographer, journalist, and diplomat. The lecture incorporated his photography and some of his writings, along with the observations and insights of his daughter. Have a listen to our conversation. Could you please introduce yourself for our audience? I'm Dorothy Davis. I'm president of Dorothy Davis, Inc. and the Diaspora in Touch, LLC. And uh, both of those are international consulting firms that focus on sustainable development in a whole wide variety of areas, including women's rights, cultural affairs, creative economy, and South-South cooperation. And what does that mean? South-South cooperation is where countries from the global South the way I describe it is former, formerly colonized countries who are obviously independent at this point, but working together. So Brazil and Nigeria or Afghanistan and, I don't know, Egypt, uh, that's South-South. It's different from the South that we talk about here in terms of Florida and Louisiana and so forth, but it's also part of the South um, because it's all about culture and the creative uniqueness of each one of those cultures. Nice, I like that. Can you tell me a little bit more about your life? Uh, I'm a daughter of a U.S. Foreign Service officer, and I would add that I'm the daughter of a pioneer African-American U.S. Foreign Service officer, because that has been different. (laughs) Um, In so being, I was born in Liberia and raised in Nigeria and Tunisia at the times when those countries were just becoming independent. And at the same time, I went to school in Switzerland so and, and the U.S. So I've had a very, very eclectic upbringing. Today you presented at UCF for the Africana Studies James Weldon Johnson Lecture Series. Um, can you tell me what was the title of your presentation and what did you talk about? The title of my presentation was Lift Every Voice and Sing an African Diasporan Interpretation. Lift Every Voice and Sing was the signature song, so to speak, of James Weldon Johnson and is considered the national Negro anthem, even though we don't use Negro anymore, but that's basically how we see it. And so I found it, the, the song itself and the man himself, as being an inspiration for highlighting the work of, and life legacy of my father, Griff Davis, who was a photographer, a journalist, and a diplomat, pioneering in all three of those areas in the era of the both the independence movement of Africa and the U.S. civil rights movement. I stretched the word song to represent not only singing song or music song, but to represent the different, I'll call it creative talents, of James Weldon Johnson as well as my dad, which his again, was photography and writing. So I basically explained his life and the kinds of experiences he had, uh, both in early his early childhood in uh, Atlanta and um, his international experience. 
Great. Well, that leads me to my next question. Um, could you tell me more about the life and career of your father, Griffith J. Davis? Obviously, I grew up with him, as most daughters do with their parents. But also, like most daughters and parents, they, the parents don't tell you anything until the last minute or you find out after they've gone. So while I knew a lot before he died in 1993, I learned a whole lot more after he passed by going through his writings as a journalist and his uh, writings as a diplomat, as well as his photography, because he had he left a legacy of 55,000 photographic images that represent roughly 12 categories, subject categories. So he was literally born on Morehouse College's campus and then raised on Spelman College's campus because my grandfather was the superintendent of buildings and grounds. And uh, my grandfather died when my dad was 16 and my dad still had another year of high school so uh, my grandmother was able to make a deal with Spellman to allow him to stay on the campus for another year in exchange for him being the campus photographer. So he became the campus photographer and then he went on to Morehouse College like any Morehouse man would do. <laughs> um, so he went on to college and of course uh, within a year or two, I can't remember the exact dates, but in any case when World War II broke out, he became a Buffalo soldier in the 92nd Infantry Division of the U.S. Army um, and was sent to Genoa, Italy, where his job was to be the photographer. And he used to tell me all the time, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that I was a photographer, I may not be, I might not have been here. I'm like, okay, I, don't, I didn't really understand what he was saying at the time. Now I clearly understand. So he took photographs of African-American soldiers because it was a segregated army going to the beach, which is not something you would think in the middle of a war, and uh, playing checkers or, you know, mixing with the locals in terms of uh, lifestyle and, and just getting to know the culture. When the war ended, the Italian government asked the U.S. government to lend him, so to speak, to do aerial shots of uh, Genoa Harbor so that they could rebuild Genoa Harbor. He wrote about that in Ebony Magazine later. So he returned, he returned from World War II and went back to Morehouse to finish his degree in business. And when he got back, his classmates included Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and a man named A. Romeo Horton, who was a Liberian who ultimately created the first indigenous bank of Liberia and also was the intellectual architect for the African Development Bank, which is really a major player in African politics and economy. And he also created the Economic Community for West African States. Then also, when he came back to campus, found that Langston Hughes, the Harlem, Harlem Renaissance writer, was teaching there uh, as a visiting professor. He was at Atlanta University nearby. He took his English class with him and Langston Hughes realized that he was a photographer and basically saw an opportunity to use him for his own purposes, not in a negative way, but that way. And so they, anyway, became a friendship and, and, it, and ultimately became a lifelong friendship. So um, when my dad finished college in 1947, he was looking for a job like most of us are. <laughs> and so Langston Hughes happened to run into John Johnson, the founder and publisher of Ebony Magazine, 
at the World's Fair. I don't know where the World's Fair was that year, but anyway, at a World's Fair somewhere. <laughs> anyway, so um, Johnson mentioned to Langston Hughes that he was looking for a roving editor for his magazine. And Langston Hughes, knowing that my dad had just graduated and looking for a job, suggested my dad. So he hired my dad. So my dad became the first roving editor for Ebony Magazine. And we're talking 1947. So he moved from Atlanta to Chicago at that point. Now, up to that point, he had been pretty much just a photographer with some journalism. He worked for the Atlanta Daily World in Atlanta. But uh, because of the segregation that existed in Atlanta, I have grown to believe that photography was an easier song for him. And that's how I, I captured it in the talk today, that that photography was his first song and his first expression of his voice. Um, because in that way, he could express himself and what he saw without putting him in jeopardy of getting lynched as a black man in Jim Crow era. So he went to Chicago and he met a couple. Her name was Etta Moten Barnett. She was an actress and she was the first Bess in Porgy and Bess. And her husband was Claude Barnett, and he was chair of the National Newspaper Publishers Association. And for some reason, they kept going back and forth to Africa. I'm not real clear about why they kept going at that time. And so they would have these coffee clashes in their kitchen or, or their home. So my dad would go to the coffee clashes, and that's what got him interested in going to Africa initially. So meanwhile, John Johnson wasn't paying a lot of money, and my father was starting to think that he should improve his journalistic skills and so he started conferring with Langston Hughes about the possibility of going to Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism. So in the end Langston Hughes wrote one of his three recommendation letters and uh, he got in and Columbia only accepted one African-American student per year at that time and because Langston had had did not have a good experience apparently when he was a student at Columbia. He suggested that my dad might rent a room from his house in Harlem. And so that's what my dad did. So he lived in Langston Hughes' house for the academic year and he rented a room and I have a check, you know, a rent check that he made out to Langston Hughes that he signed on the back, right? So I'm keeping that check. And so, um, but Langston, of course, was continuing to write and do what Langston Hughes did. And so um, he would take my dad with him on these, well, I'll call them adventures. They probably weren't adventures, but on these interviews so that he would take the pictures <laughs> and the pictures would be published. And so there's an assort, we have an assortment of like, I don't know, it's like 300 different pictures of Langston Hughes, both when he was a professor, visiting professor in Atlanta University, and when he was, when my dad was living with him. One of them actually has him laying in bed asleep. And, and I don't know how my dad got that picture, but in any case, it's bizarre, but it's like that. And I also have a transcription of an interview done with my dad about what it was like to live in the house and what were the protocols and so forth and so on. So anyway, that was that was part of life. And so 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 then he finished Columbia and now we're in 1949. We're in June 1949. So while he was at Columbia, he met this man, Mr. Safransky from the Black Star Agency. Mr. Safransky was one of three Jewish photojournalists 
who came from Germany as refugees, actually, and st essentially started the photojournalism industry in the U.S. through Black Star Agency, and were responsible for helping Henry Luce, the Time Magazine founder, create Life Magazine. And so when my dad finished with Columbia, when he graduated from Columbia, he became an international freelance photojournalist for Black Star Agency. He was, I think he was the only African-American in that circle, too. And he convinced a, an American uh, businessman named Lansdale Christie to pay for him to go to Liberia to do a story about the Liberian mining company that this man was president of so that it could appear in U.S. and other publications. And so that started the first of three consecutive trips that he made to Liberia between 49 and 52. During that time, uh, he gained the uh, confidence of President William B.S. Tubman of Liberia, and I think partially because his classmate, Romeo Horton, was there and probably introduced him to everyone there. And at the same time, the U.S. government had a legation in Liberia and had decided to upgrade it to a U.S. embassy. And in doing so, that embassy became the first U.S. embassy, not only in Liberia, but in Africa as a whole. At that point, Liberia and Ethiopia were the only independent countries in Africa. The rest was colonized, and so this was a really significant move. It was also significant because in doing so, you have to appoint a U.S. ambassador. And so the U.S. appointed it, its first or our first African-American U.S. ambassador, Edward Dudley. He was the first African-American ambassador, not only for Liberia or Africa, but in the world. And so that was pretty, pretty significant. Now, the backstory of that is that the first African-American Foreign Service officer was Clifton R. Wharton, Sr., and he passed his exam in 1925. He was the only professional African-American working in the entire U.S. State Department building. Everyone else was menial or something of that nature, but they didn't want him to uh, stay in the building long. So after he passed the exam, within 24 hours of passing the exam, the State Department immediately sent him to Liberia without any proper orientation in the same way that they would have a white foreign service officer. So anyway, he got sent to Liberia, and they continued that tradition of sending African-American foreign service officers to Liberia or Haiti only, and their white counterparts went anywhere. So by the time my dad gets to Liberia, there is a pool of African-American foreign service officers working there, and he, he was asked by President Tubman to do a one-man photo exhibition at the American Museum of Natural History in New York about Liberia. And at the time, the dichotomy is that as an African-American, he would not have been able to do that in New York. But because Liberia was a sovereign state, the American Museum of Natural History allowed that to happen. At the same time, Tubman asked him to do a documentary on Liberia called Pepper Bird Land. And Pepper Bird Land essentially was the first promotional film of Liberia. It was kind of like, come to Liberia, we're, you know, we're great. It's that kind of film, and, but it covers all the different sectors. And so 
unbeknownst to me why this man was there, but Sidney Poitier was in Liberia at the time. I don't quite understand why he was there, but he became the narrator for the film and charged my dad $75 to to do that and then asked him to put, put his name in the credits and that's all he wanted. So that's what happened. Meanwhile, my dad and my mom had met in, at Spelman, but they hadn't started going out. But at this point, she uh, was working at Doubleday Publishing. She was in the executive, she was the first African-American female working at, in the executive office of Doubleday Publishing. And he sent her a note or however way they communicated <laughs> Um, saying, I want, you know, will you marry me and come, but if you say yes, you have to come to Liberia to marry me because I have to finish editing this film. And she had never been on a plane and said yes. And all of a sudden she's on a plane, Pan Am, and goes straight to Liberia and marries him. I thought that was pretty gutsy. And so anyway, and she told her boss that she would be back in two weeks or something. She didn't show up for six weeks and thought she had lost her job. But in any case, they she married him in Liberia. They had a honeymoon. Their honeymoon started in Kakata, Liberia, which is like half hour outside or hour outside of Monrovia, the capital, and, um, and on the farm of a friend. And then they went to, I don't know if it's this order, but Lisbon, Paris and Madrid for their honeymoon and my dad shot and wrote it for Ebony magazine under the title Global Honeymoon. Meanwhile, before leaving Liberia, President Harry Truman had created this program called the Point Four program and it was the beginning of the overseas assistance program for um, the U.S. and they were, I'll call it test marketing it, in Liberia and I believe in Philippines and Iran, I think. And the man who was in charge of it in Liberia was a man named John W. Davis, but he was not related to us. And he asked my dad if he would consider joining the Foreign Service. So when when my parents came back here after their honeymoon, my dad applied for the Foreign Service and got in, and uh, first first place to go is Liberia. So, so he went back, they went back to Liberia, and now they're a diplomat, and I, I call that another song. That's another song, another expression of voice. And the timing was such that uh, it coincided with President Tubman inviting Kwame Nkrumah of, then it was called the Gold Coast, now it's called Ghana, uh, to come to visit him in Liberia in January 53. So President Tubman sent my dad down, I'm sure with the ambassador's blessings, but sent my dad down to Accra to pick up Kwame Nkrumah in his, in his ship and sail back up to Monrovia. And so my dad took all these pictures of Kwame Nkrumah coming up to Monrovia for essentially a very important and what I understand is a very historic meeting between them before four years before Ghana became independent. He was very well received by the American embassy because the U.S. was claiming him because he went to Lincoln University in Pennsylvania. So, of course, the U.S. is, is excited about the fact that he has some degree of Americanness with him. At the same time, he represented the independence movement in Africa, the beginning of it, and he came wearing kente cloth, which is traditional dress 
in Ghana, and President Tubman was wearing tails and um, represented a different kind of uh, approach to things. And apparently that was the purpose of the meeting, is to find some way that they could work together or get one to adopt the other's perspective. I don't know that that quite worked, but in any case, I know that Liberia was supportive of Ghana's independence. During this time, there was a reception on President Tubman's boat in Monrovia, and my mom was there, and Kwame Nkrumah saw my mom and came over to her. He was across the side, of, I don't know, he was on one side of the boat or something, came over to her and asked her if she knew how to do the high life, which is a Ghanaian dance. And my mom said, no, I don't know how to do that. So he proceeded to teach her how to do that. And uh, my dad took a picture of it. So it's a really nice picture of them dancing. My dad ended up doing the official photograph of the meeting between the two leaders. One of the things about being in the Foreign Service as an African-American is that at the time, Jim Crow was going on in the U.S. And here you are officially representing the U.S. government as a democracy and as a land of the free. But in fact, you are freer in the country that you're serving, which is Liberia. You have more of an opportunity to express your true talent, to expand to your fullest as a person. And so there was always this conflict between what they were able to do on ground, legitimately, and what they would have been able to do back home in the U.S., no matter what state they came from. And so they always had to walk this fine line between the personal and the professional challenges of it. And at the same time, they're witnessing the independence movement in Africa and, and connecting that to the U.S. civil rights movement here. So it was, I would say, emotionally conflicting, even though they never talked about it. But there was no question about allegiance. The allegiance was to the U.S. always. But that was a part that the U.S. State Department didn't always understand. They saw it as meddling in internal affairs. There was a story where, which I didn't say today, when Kwame Nkrumah came to Liberia, my parents hosted him in our home like a reception, and it was for the media. It was for the Ghanaian press or the Gold Coast press that came with him. It was for whatever press was in Liberia itself and, and what little press there was in terms of the U.S. side. And my dad, being the information officer for the U.S. Embassy, was responsible for pulling that together. In doing that, of course, he had to get the permission of the ambassador. And so everybody knew what he was doing, including looking at whatever his notes were going to be or whatever his speech was going to be. So in his speech, he talked about the independence movement and, and you know, how Af Africa was, was coming, well, I'm saying fruition. He didn't say it that way. He was much more diplomatic than I am. <laughs> so, and so, any case, uh, State Department in Washington got a wind of this. And you mind you, there's no, there's no TV, there's no internet. So they found out about it, and they they uh, interpreted that as his meddling in internal affairs, not understanding this bond I, or this affinity between the the desire for freedom here and the desire for freedom there as people. And um, anyway, of course, the ambassador acted as if he didn't know anything about it, which I don't blame him because he's saving his job. And I, I really don't blame him. He was in a no-win situation. My father reacted because now he's in his 30s, so that's a different age in terms of how you react to things. <laughs> so so 
Um, my father was uh, outraged, is the best word. And so he put in his, his letter of resignation and was adamant. And um, when, the president, when President Tubman heard that he had put in his letter of resignation, he, he pulled both of them in and said, no, he can't leave because what my father had created the first audiovisual center in the country. So the, the government, both U.S. and Liberia, were dependent on it, as, as were the private sector. My father was teaching the, the training people in Liberia how to use audiovisual materials and get messaging out, and he was helping Liberia figure out how to, how to brand itself and how to express itself to the world. So President Tubman did not want him to go anywhere. Meanwhile, my mother didn't know anything about this and was pregnant with me. So she didn't find out about this until like 30 years later. So anyway, finally, President Tubman was able to negotiate. And my father, the way they solved it was my father took his resignation letter back and we went back to normal, whatever normal was. And um, But that, that's, that, that was the example of the State Department not understanding what what was really happening and how difficult a situation that was personally for an African-American Foreign Service officer. The other thing he did there was he created the Ministry of Information. That's an example of something that he could do to his fullest talent. He would never be able to do that here in the U.S. at that time. Ultimately, Vice President Richard Nixon came to Liberia, Nigeria, and Ghana on his first trip to Africa. He was, he was representing the U.S. government at the uh, inauguration of Kwame Nkrumah when he became prime minister and president of Ghana in 1957. And my father took pictures of that trip. He also was the official photo- one of the official photographers for the actual Independence Day celebration in Accra. That was, he, he took a really amazing picture of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King Jr. and his wife Coretta Scott King had been invited by Kwame Nkrumah to the celebration and it was only months after the end of the Montgomery bus boycott. And so the time in the U.S. was very volatile in terms of race relations. And there's a picture of Vice President Richard Nixon and Patricia, his wife, and Coretta Scott King and Martin Luther King meeting for the first time on Ghana soil during the celebration of Kwame Nkrumah's inauguration and Ghana's Independence Day. That picture was banned from the U.S. because it would have caused an uproar here. Um, from what I understand, in 1957, President Dwight Eisenhower was forced to send troops to Little Rock, Arkansas to protect the students who were going to Central High School and had the picture of Vice President Richard Nixon showed up in the media in the U.S. meeting Martin Luther King. That would not have gone well. The, the beauty of Kwame Nkrumah, I believe, and this is my own interpretation, is that had, because he had been a student at Lincoln University for, I think, six to eight years outside of Philadelphia, he understood the racial dynamics going on in America at that time, and I'm sure he experienced it as well, because there was no distinction between whether you're African or Black American. So 
he used, I believe, used his platform as in, of Independence Day to bring together people who otherwise would never have an opportunity to meet. And that is what happened when Martin Luther King and Richard Nixon met on Ghana's soil. From what I understand, because my dad was friends with Martin Luther King and Coretta Scott King because they came from Atlanta, Nixon invited King at that point to come to Washington, D.C., which is something that he would have never been able to do on U.S. soil. So that was pretty significant. So they went, they, everybody left, they went their separate ways, and then we were stationed in Tunisia in 1957. And Tunisia had just become independent. President uh, Habib Bourguiba was the founding father, so to speak. And my dad, and, and we were uh, among the first wave of Americans to live in, in Tunisia. And so there was no special housing. We didn't have any kind of, like now they have fortresses. The embassies are like fortresses. We didn't have any of that. We, we lived in a great house. <laughs> I love this house. We lived in a great house on the Mediterranean and it was a bunch of sand for a kid who's like six years old or so. Right? And it was a bunch of sand, right? Like a sand hill right next to us. So that was great. And we could just run down to the, to the sea and, and have fun. And our friends were other foreign service brats and our family, my mom would, well, my mom could pass for Tunisian. Okay, so that was another flip side of everything. So she could pass for Tunisian, but she was doing things that Tunisian women weren't supposed to do, like drive. So she was the first woman to drive in Tunisia. And of all things, they had a red car. <laughs> and so clearly the cops could find her, right? And so they would stop her because what are you doing driving? And then they would realize that she's American and they, oh, okay, you can go. You know, so she had that kind of dual experience. And, uh, and at the same time, she was isolated because women didn't go out with men in public spaces where she was used to going out with my dad in Liberia without any issue. Then there was the language barrier because the State Department at the time did not teach spouses language. Um, they taught the, quote, employee the language, but not the spouse. So Tunisia was a difficult post for most American spouses. And, of course, the spouses were mostly women. Well, not mostly. They were women. <laughs> so, so, you know, a lot, there were a lot of problems with, with that particular post. But aside from that, uh, my dad was responsible for helping uh, Tunisia create its film industry and uh, learn how to use, well, he was like the, the audiovisual technician, so to speak, from the U.S. Embassy to the Tunisian government. I believe President Eisenhower got there, too, because I see pictures of him also in that era. And then we were there, I think, to 1961. At the same time that we were there, Algeria was having its revolution. And that's the country right next to Tunisia. And I, I just remember there was this huge explosion. I just remember the ground shaking in our, in our living room. And I, I didn't know, well, what was that, right? And so my dad explained to me that they were bombing in Algeria and, and we could feel it, right? So I have very weird experiences like that. Um, we also had a, a, a nanny, I guess you would call her a nanny, babysitter, whatever. Um, she was French. And uh, I just remember her being, a, she, was, she was with my brother and I on the beach. 
and she was attacked. And somebody, like a Tunisian, came and attacked her. And, you know, we didn't, luckily they didn't harm her, although, I mean, they pushed her to the, to the sand, but they didn't harm her. And it's only lately that I realized that that must have been part of the whole Algerian-Tunisian independence, uh, post-independence uh, scenario. But, of course, nobody explained that to us. So, and we were too small to understand that. But those are the, some of the experiences um, that I remember then I, after Tunisia, uh, we were we brought stateside because with the State Department, you go over for a few years and then you have to come back to headquarters. I call it the mothership. <laughs> and so um, because as a foreign service child's brat, whatever you want to call me, it always dictated my life. So to me, it's a mothership to my dad and the employer. And I feel like I own the State Department and the building it's in and that everybody else is just renting it out. That's how I feel about the State Department. So when we were in Tunisia, my parents were concerned about having a level ed- education for my brother and I, because the goal was always for us to get to American colleges. So my father uh, and mother decided that we should go to private schools. Whenever we were stateside, we should go to private schools to compensate for whatever deficiencies there may be in our um, school curricula. They contacted a friend in New Jersey. They were in Tunisia. They contacted a friend in New Jersey because my mom's family's from New Jersey and asked for advice of a list of private schools. So they they got the list, they came down to one, they, they sorted it out. And so they started corresponding with the principal of the school and explained, you know, I, I think maybe I was first grade, I can't remember which grade it was. But anyway, so they explained to the principal that they wanted me to go there and could that happen? So the principal said, oh yeah, this will work, you know, this is fine, okay. So my mom comes over from Tunisia to New Jersey and my dad tells the principal, well, my wife is now in New Jersey, can she come and meet with you? So he says, yeah, sure. So she shows up and he realizes that she's black. Okay, now we're 1960. He realizes that she's black and he's backtracking. Oh, nope. Your child can't go to school here. We have, uh, the parents won't be able to manage that. The board of trustees won't, won't accept that. So no, your child can't come here. So my dad, now he's a, he's a pioneer African-American foreign service officer. His whole purpose for his job is to talk about democracy of the U.S., the land of the free, and whatever else you want to put with that. And uh, so my dad writes him and says, excuse me, uh, this is what I do for a living, and now I can't even get my child in school in New Jersey? Does that make sense to you? (laughs) So the man kept saying, no, you know, she can't come here. They even gave me a test. They gave me a test in French. (laughs) I spoke fluent English with my family is American, right? So I spoke fluent English, and they said, well, we're gonna test her in French. And my father's like, why do you need to test her in French? She's, she speaks fluent English. And they would throw up roadblocks like that. So anyway, so essentially my father, I think he wrote the governor of the state and explained if, you know, you need to do something about this because I am connected to the media and I will exercise that right. Meanwhile, my mom, since she was physically over here, filed a lawsuit on behalf of me and challenged the decision. And so that, they won, and I essentially opened up private schools to 
black people, but also people of color in the state of New Jersey at a time when everyone was focusing on the South, which that's the part I don't understand. Martin Luther King was running around all over the South talking about these same issues. Brown versus Board of Ed had already happened in 1954, and somehow I can't get into school in New Jersey. So when people blame the South or push the South about these things, I say, excuse me, what about New Jersey? You know, I know New Jersey, okay? So don't blame the South. This is, this is something that's in the country. So I got into the school, and ultimately I didn't go to that particular school, but I went to another school, and I, my mom says I was integrated it both as a female and as an African-American. I, I really can't remember all that, but in any case, I was there for three years. Over the course of three years, there were other girls that came, that I remember, and one African-American male and one African-American female by the time I left in sixth grade, uh, fifth grade, in fifth grade. By then, my dad had returned from Tunisia. He went back to D.C., the headquarters, and um, we moved from New Jersey to D.C. At that point, he was uh, posted to Nigeria. Um, I think it was 60, yeah, like the fall of 66. And um, the plan was for us to join him at the end of the school year. Well, by then they had put us at, into school as Sidwell Friends. And so I integrated Sidwell Friends as an African-American female. I didn't know that, but that's what I did. And so I would integrated it from sixth to eighth grade when I'm, I'm jumping now. When President Barack Obama and Michelle Obama decided to place their children, Sasha and Malia, at Sidwell Friends at the same age group that I integrated it, I was floored because it, it was such an amazing moment for me personally to feel like I had opened the door. Clearly, I didn't know I was opening the door, but looking back that I had actually opened the door for them to be able to come to that school and to have the kind of education that I had, which I'm sure has even improved even more since the years I was there. Actually, I went to my 40th class reunion at Sidwell Friends, and it coincided with the year that Malia was graduating. And I was so excited, and I couldn't contain myself. And, and I felt such an affinity with her because there was a picture of her. I think it was Prime Minister Trudeau had come to the White House and they were having their state dinner. And finally, the Obamas decided that their, their daughters could come out, so to speak. And so they, they, there are pictures of them coming down this amazing hallway and they're all decked out in their long gowns and they're gorgeous young women, right? And, and I just so identified with Malia because she was entering a world that she had no role models for. And that's exactly how I felt in the Foreign Service. And so I could really identify with her. So at the 40th class reunion, I, I felt like I had to say something. So in the Quaker tradition, they have what's called a meeting. And you go into this room and you're quiet because the Quakers believe that you're quiet until you hear the voice, your inner voice. And then your inner voice basically tells you what to say. 
So I was sitting there waiting, and I was thinking, I really want to talk about this. But how am I going to talk about this? And then I was scared to death because I never did it before my whole time there. And, and I finally, some woman got up and said her piece, whatever she had to say. And I somehow got courage from her standing up to say whatever it was she said. So finally, I stood up. And then I went, oh, no, I really did stand up. <laughs> so, so I'm like, oh. So I, I said, okay, I'm Dorothy Davis. And I integrated Sidwell Friends. And I am so excited that Malia is, Malia Obama is graduating this year, and I was the one that integrated the school at the same level that she and her sister came into the school, and I just wanted to say that. And then I sat down, and I think, oh, God, I was such a fool. <laughs> but, but then afterwards, they came up to me, well, what was it like <laughs> to be to be the first, and, you know, how were you treated? And I said, no, pe people treated me fine. I didn't have any issues. Nobody did bad things to me. I had great friends, and, and I reunited with them in the different reunions that I ended up going to. So just thought I'd share that. I love that, because it kind of brings it all to now. Is there anything you would like to add before our interview concludes? I, I would like to say to anyone listening that they follow their own path and be true to themselves in terms of what they think they want to do, even if in the end they decide they don't want to do it. And maybe it'll turn into something else. I was really honored to be chosen by Dr. Fawn Gordon to be the speaker at the launch of the 2018 James Weldon Johnson Lecture Series at University of Central Florida because of his signature song, Lift Every Voice and Sing, and the time that he wrote that song, which was six years after the Civil War ended and six years before the end of the Reconstruction era. And he was part of the first generation of African Americans to be born into freedom. And I find that to be very inspirational, and I feel like that's what led him to create such a wonderful song of hope and inspiration. And even though his story is different from obviously my dad's story or your story or my story, the, the seminal piece is that you should follow what your inner voice tells you to do. And you should be the voice for people who are not only downtrodden, but people from the past who are maybe no longer here, whose own Legacies have actually built the foundation for the present and acknowledge their existence and build on it because this life is just a baton race and that's what we are. It's been really wonderful talking to you. It's been great meeting you and I enjoyed your lecture and just thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much. That was Dorothy Davis talking with me about her presentation at the recent James Weldon Johnson lecture series titled Lift Every Voice and Sing an African Diaspora Interpretation. For Night's History Cast, I'm Holly Baker. Please subscribe to this podcast to hear future interviews and conversations. 